Restaurant Unstoppable episode 1012 with Gary Crunkleton. I think people come to bars for a bunch of different reasons, but I would I would like to think, I'd like to hope that they come there's a different type of experience when they come to my bars because they're going to get a little more fulfillment. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Restaurant owners and operators, you can make a difference in the lives of your staff and their families by supporting CORE, which stands for Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE is a national nonprofit that provides financial grants to food and beverage service employees with children when either the employee, their child, or their partner faces a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Not only can you share CORE as a benefit in resource with your staff, you can also donate directly or host a fundraising promotion. Core critically needs your financial support to continue to provide relief to restaurant employees that qualify for a grant when life does not go as planned. Support of Core allows you to give back to your employees and restaurant families across the country. Visit coregives.com org to learn more together we can make a difference in the lives of those who serve us daily this episode is brought to you by reachify why are you still taking phone calls when you have online services that can support the majority of your guest needs redirect your callers so you can focus on the food and the guests across the counter reachify is powerful and flexible for example with advanced automation and caller deflection reachify prevents missed caller opportunities and diverse callers to online actions Reachify also simplifies workflows for your team, enabling them to operate more efficiently to attract, retain, and engage callers effectively. Reachify, be in control of the conversation you want to have when you're able to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. That's reachify.io slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. It, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, I'll allow me to introduce to you today's guest, owner of the Crunkleton, Gary Crunkleton. Gary, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? 
I'm feeling unstoppable, Eric. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm feeling unstoppable <laughs> because everyone that I bumped into over the past two days here in Raleigh, when your name Gary comes up, they're like a legend, amazing dude. You're going to have so much fun with him. They really set the bar high on this one, not to make you too nervous, but uh, I cannot wait to dive in. But before we do, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it into context for you. When I was a kid, I used to mow grass, you know, to earn money. Yeah. And um, I kind of struggled with, with – it seems like I always struggled with my direction and what I was supposed to be doing. And, and there was this one family that I worked for, um, Boots and Louise, and she would always give me this advice to just be yourself. As long as you're yourself, as long as you're yourself, everything's going to work out. And it was kind of one of those quotes or, in, or inspirational quotes that – are, that's true, but hard, really hard to decipher right. when you're 15 years old. Yeah, like, yeah, keep going. But now I find myself saying it to people all the time. Um, I, I bartend in a in a college town, so we'll get the the undergrads and graduate students coming, and and many of them are leaving undergrad to go on with their lives, or leaving grad school to go on with their lives. And I'll say, just be yourself, and it will all work out. At 57. With three kids and a loving bride, um, I think I understand what Louise was talking about when she said it back in 1980, 81 or so. I think it's tough when you're younger. And the irony is when, when, we, when you get that advice, when you're a young man or a young woman, you don't know who you are yet. Yeah, yeah. You don't really have an idea of who you are until you're in your like late 20s, I feel like. That's like that, that uh, where that self-awareness really starts to kick in. Your frontal lobe is fully developed at that point, and like, that's where self-awareness lives in that, that like, frontal precortex area. So, I didn't like, know that. Yeah, know that. So, like, and it's one of the last things to evolve um, or to mature as an adult. So like, you don't really start to fall into who you are until you're a, a, a man or a woman. Right. Uh, so it's, I think it's kind of ironic. And also, there are no secrets to this industry. And some of the, the, and it reminds me what you said, just be yourself. The, the, the lessons we get in like literally like kindergarten are like the, the secrets of being successful in the restaurant industry. It's that simple, but it's also that hard. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah. Like it's being hard. yourself isn't yeah, easy. It's so hard. And, and especially for us that are in the, you know, we're in the service hospitality industry. All we do is give, give, give. Right. And so we don't say no. Right. Um, yeah. It, it's hard. It, it's hard. It's, and when you said, that most people develop it in their twenties or you know uh, late twenties. Um, I was thinking, uh oh, <laughs> again here I go. I'm, I'm behind because <laughs> I think I think I'm still working on that now. I know I know the past couple of years I've been working on authenticity. Um, I, you know, I'm I feel like sometimes I'm the I'm the mechanic that can fix everyone's car in town but drives a, a jalopy, you know, drives a piece of junk and can't fix myself. And, and, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I find myself wondering like who, what really inspires me and what really, uh, makes me, uh, get excited to get up in the morning. In and what I'm, ways are you fixing other people? Well, as a bartender, oh man, people come in all the time, Eric, with, with different issues and, and, uh, well, I shouldn't say with different issues. I should say people often come in and they come in. You know, people people come to bars for a bunch of different reasons. I would like to think that my bar, they come to escape and and feel comfortable within the setting where they're allowed to be. They can drink. They can drink two drinks. All I want them to do is drink two drinks. Our drinks are strong. Um, 
they can have two drinks and feel a little less inhibited and a little more relaxed and uh, talk to the staff. Um, I think people come to bars for a bunch of different reasons, but I would I would like to think, I'd like to hope that they come, there's a different type of experience when they come to my bars because um, they're going to get a little more fulfillment out of that experience. And it's a little more of a, shit, I don't want to sound too self-righteous, but. It's about the relationship. Yes, but it's a short relationship. You know, it's 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 in and out, two drinks. Yeah. Um, well, speaking for myself, I can say this: that when I I decide where I'm going out to eat, based off of the people that work there or the the the, the community of people that I know I'll meet up with when I'm yeah. there. Like, I don't really chase food experiences; I chase relationships. Yeah. And what's going to bring me back to a bar is what type of relationship I have with that that bartender or the people that work there. Do I enjoy their company? Like right, that, right, that's right. huge for me. Right. People go to bars for the bartenders. Right. When I was consulting, I don't consult anymore, but I used to consult a lot. We opened our bar in 2008, and back then in North Carolina, the cocktail renaissance wasn't happening. Gail DeGraw started it in 96, and it had caught on in, in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, Seattle. It wasn't even happening in in, uh, in Atlanta. It was happening in New Orleans, but New Orleans is touristy, so they're doing they're doing other things besides the classic cocktail. Um, but when I did this thing, I focused on classic cocktails, and a lot of people didn't know what those were, didn't know how to how to how to categorize it. Didn't it was it was very very new. So uh, I was able to get a lot of consulting jobs out of that because somebody some rich guy wanted to open a bar and yeah. they would hire me to come and you set it up. A, a, a- like that's a, it remind me it reminds me of this like the advice for doctors like don't be a general practitioner like be a specialist if you want to make money as a doctor like be a specialist specialize yeah specialize and you specialize I specialize in classic cocktails yeah, yeah in a time where it was becoming a fire and not a lot of people knew about it it's no a good place to be it wasn't happening in the south yeah. um, there were a couple guys doing it in Atlanta but it wasn't it, overall it wasn't really happening so I would do these consulting jobs and these rich people would put. God, they would spend $80,000, $140,000 on equipment, wow. but not want to pay the bartenders $10 an hour or even $7 an hour. Right. They wanted to pay them the minimum wage, which, which uh, is, is like $2.35 or something. It might be more now. I don't know. Um, Depends on the state. Yeah, but we pay. like We pay at least 10 you know, where I work. And, and uh, it just didn't make sense because people come to bars, like you were saying, people come to bars – for the the bartenders, not the fancy machine, not the yet. fancy machines. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So that being said, um, with the staff that I have, or the or the experience that I want to uh, evoke, um, with the with the guests when they come in, is I want them to feel relaxed and comfortable, and um, able to talk about whatever they want. So when you ask the question like, "How are you talking to uh, guests?" or man, I mean. There's a, I've had people at a. You also give them one or two drinks, and again, that frontal lobe is <laughs> is the executive place, yeah. and that's the first thing to go offline when you have a couple of drinks, and that's when the truth comes out. Yeah, it's a great truth serum. So, like, you ask somebody how you doing, get ready for get ready. Uh, yeah, yeah, buckle the, up. Yeah, <laughs> I had a girl come once. She had just been sexually assaulted, yeah. oh. and um, she came to the bar because she knew that she'd feel safe and she could talk to me. Wow. 
That's um, saying a lot. Most women was, don't feel safer going to a bar. Yeah, yeah. She she came to the bar and talked to me, and, and then we called her. She was an undergraduate. Um, we called her roommates, and and uh, they came up and. Well, like like literally just got sexually yeah, assaulted. Yeah, wow. just happened. Yeah, just happened. Yep, yep. So she just came. Like, she she literally, came to the bar. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And and yeah, and then I have uh, I've had um, situations where. People get divorced, or they get in an argument with their wife, you know, and they come to the bar to relax. Now, I'm not saying, you know, my bars are ho hum. <laughs> you know, they're bad places. No, they're exciting places. Um, but, but what I hope that we're able to to, to offer is uh, a place where people could feel themselves mm. and be themselves. I love that. But it's hard. You know, it's hard. It's a hard business. I know you were talking about your mom and dad had a restaurant. It's a tough business. It's really, really tough. And 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 being able to, for me, being able to give so much, like, and show so much vulnerability um, to guests, and not, I'm not looking for anything in return. It's not transactional. It's 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 me being um, who I am, genuine. Um, there's, uh, it, it. I think it's skewed my authenticity a little bit. I think a little bit. So that's what I've been working on the past couple of years. I want to make sure I understand this. We're getting deep right off the gate. <laughs> but so um, by being, so by being there and vulnerable for others, that skews your authenticity. So, but it sounds like you're authentically interested in people. Yes. Yes. So what am I missing? Uh, there's also this role of, of customer service where you say yes. Uh, uh, and the customer is always right, and that that aspect of it. So, so it's we're in an area where it's supposed to be transactional. I don't know if this makes sense. It makes sense to me, but we're supposed to be transactional. There, there is buy, a transaction yeah, happening. Yeah, um, and then because they're giving you the money, they're the they're the they're the client or they're the customer. Yeah, they're 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 higher. Or they're it's not really about the bartender. It's about their own experience. Um, when I and opening myself up and showing my vulnerabilities so that, so they will feel more comfortable. Then it can get difficult because they're not there to listen to your problems. Yeah. I don't want to, I think I may be going down a rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) No, I hear what you're saying. You're kind of like a human pincushion where a bartender's job is to listen and to absorb and to make people feel like they can come to you in the most horrible times, like after being sexually assaulted. Yeah, assaulted yeah. So you, you're, you've been in this industry for what, 30, 20? A long time, long time. I, I don't want to date you. 90, uh, 92 is my first bartending job. 92. So yeah. 31 years. Damn. 31 years. Thanks, that's a That's a lot. <laughs> you want to kick me? <laughs> <laughs> but that's a long time to be just taking it, taking it, taking it. Yeah. And I think what, what I'm hearing is that we need to be better about give, like being heard. And going and making sure we're getting that, whether it's a, a therapist or somebody, a friend to meet up with regularly and just offload. And you don't get to do that in your position. Is that uh, what I'm hearing? No, you don't get to offload. Is that what it, is that, is that? Am I making the connection? I think so. Okay. I think so. I want to add to this. I don't know if you want to. It's your show. And I don't want you to know if you I want to get it. I barely edit. Um, I want to add to this too. <laughs> in, the, in the 90s when I was bartending, like right now, currently, the past seven years, 
vulnerability, eight years, vulnerability is being cool. But in the 90s when I was bartending, when I'm opening myself up and talk to people about stuff. Get out of here with your problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They used to say, they used to say you know, leave your, pro- your personal problems at the door when you come to work. Um, but now when I talk to, when I train staff, or I'm like, no, huh? you don't need to leave your, you don't need to leave your uh, problems, your personal problems at the door when you come to work. If you're happy, I mean, I want you to be happy. And if you're upset, if something's wrong, then we need to talk about it so we can fix it. Yeah. And I think it's a, I think it's, and I, I've got this new thing I've been working on the past year or so, um, which is completely uh, abstract, but I'm trying to make sure that the, the employees are happy and they're thriving. I want them to thrive at home and at work. I want them to be positive and really enjoy what they're doing. And if, if I can help them have a better life outside of work, they're going to be better at work. They're going to come in better, yeah. Yeah, they're going to be – it's like a Danny Meyer thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so the way I do that is I talk about – I try to build a culture of vulnerability where we're able to share our issues with, with uh, the people around us in the workspace. And it just sort of kind of like osmosis or something goes into the guest experience as well. And I believe – that if you talk to a guest that comes to our places, um, I think they would say they know a little bit about Sally that, that waits tables, and they know about Bill who bartends. They know about all these different – they have personal relationships with people. And to me, that being able to show that vulnerability has built a bridge. Trust. My dad died about eight years ago, and I own the bar, so I have to work. And I did not want to go to work. I didn't get along that well with my father. Um, so when he passed away, I would have thought that, well, this is, it is what it is. And I can move on now. He's gone. Um, but I was a mess when he passed away. And my friend Robert's father had pancreatic cancer. So I was with Robert. I was in like the passenger seat with Robert while his father was passing away. So that kind of prepared me more for when my dad passed away. But when he passed away, I was a mess. I was a wreck. And I had to go bartend because I owned the bar. So I'm standing there. I don't want to bartend. A guy comes in. Um, he comes in. He sits down. He orders a beer. I pour a beer. He says, how are things going? I was like, man, things are really shitty. Um, my father just passed. But I own the bar. And my shift is now. I can't ask someone to come work for me. Um, and, but I'm here. And I don't want to be here. Mm. And, and the guy goes, Man, my father passed like a year ago. I know what you're going through. And then we talked about that. Yeah. We talked about it. And I had a shitty relationship with my father. This guy had a good relationship with his father. So I imagine he was in a much more difficult place than I was. But nevertheless, it was hard. So so uh, that's an example. Again, I don't know if you want to – I don't know if this has anything to do with Restaurant Unstoppable. You might want to stop me. But no, <laughs> man. I'm loving it. But that's what sparked this, this thing about mm. vulnerability and showing – our true selves and how that can build a bridge. Um, now in the nineties, I'm the same person. I was the same bartender now that I'm the same bartender then I am now. I did it in the nineties and it was just, it was different back then. The, uh, people didn't want to hear that stuff, but now, uh, I guess there's a transformation happening in society. Yeah. I think collectively people are far more emotionally and socially intelligent today than ever before. Yeah, we didn't, even, we didn't even know what EQ was yeah. 20 years I know. ago. I know, I know, I know. You know, like it's just now starting to become recognized as a form of intelligence. Yeah. Uh, and I think that people in the restaurant industry tend to be more emotionally and socially intelligent in general, just because we people like the people who aren't good technicians 
you know, who don't do good in the corporate world, who aren't good at doing like, like, um, I mean, I guess a bartender is a very, very significant technician, right? When you think about the skill set that you need to be a good bartender, but I'm talking about like the, the people that are, that are drawn to this industry, like the social aspect, they're very emotionally in tune, you know, they're very empathetic. Uh, and we get an abundance of these people. So I don't know where I was going with this train of thought, but I feel like I really don't. I lost the train. Well, <laughs> I'm being honest. Let me but, let me add to it. The the I train when I train the staff. I have a place in Charlotte, and when I talk to the staff about EQ, I say, um, you know, IQ is serve from the left, remove from the right, or whatever the order is. I'm not sure. Uh, the salad fork, and then the knife. You know, all those little places, all the things that you know as a server what to do. That's IQ. Right. EQ is how you do all that, so that you're you're instilling some kind of comfort and grace um, with the guests to enhance their experience. What I've been doing lately, which this is crazy, but I was thinking, because we use this Dan Meyer thing, the triangle, um, where the owner takes care of the staff, staff takes care of the well, you know the triangle. Yeah, the owner takes care of the staff. So it starts with the, the employees, and then it goes to the guests, then it goes to the purveyors, no community, then purveyors, then sh- stakeholders, I think is the, yeah, but I'm not sure about the triangle. Well, it used to be a triangle. Okay. It used to be uh maybe it's, it's added, but it used to be the staff takes care of the guests, guests take care of the restaurant and the restaurant takes care of the staff. Yeah. That's when I read the book. That's what yeah. it was about. maybe I didn't, I think it's been a while since I read it. If I'm being honest, they added some stuff to it. Well, I mean, I'm sure there was in there. there enlightened hospitality is this idea of the trickle down, right? If you take right, care, right, 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 right. If you take care of the employees, the most important guests, then like everything you just said. But yeah, like you take care of the employees, the employees take care of the staff, the the, the guests, and then it comes back around. Right. Yeah. Community. That's, that's like yeah. the, the first three like stops on the the hierarchy. So what I'm trying to do now, um, is I'm trying to create the guests' experience. I want them to when they come. I want them to put their best foot forward. And the reason why is because our staff, they're already putting their best foot forward. Mm-hmm. And the owners are putting their best foot forward to make sure that the, everything's quality. So I want the guests to put their best foot forward um, when they come to the place. And I'm, I don't know if it's working or not. Um, and again, I don't want it to come at the expense of being self-righteous because I can see myself doing that. Um, but I do these monthly newsletters and I talk about, that's what I talk about. That's what I write about. Well, no, I think it's, it's, it's transformative. You know, you have a transformative relationship with your guests where you're not just trying to serve libations and good experiences. Like you're trying to serve that person and make them a better person. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the ultimate. Now the goal, the goal, Eric the goal isn't to sell 10 million drinks or 10 million or make $10 million. The goal is to create, to create an institution where everybody feels comfortable being there. The owners, the staff, and the guests. We call them guests. We don't call them customers. Um, and everybody feels happy being there. So it only makes sense to me. And if we can make I'm backing up. If we can make three million doing that, that's fine with me because that's that's enough. You know, we don't need to make uh, twenty million or whatever. Um, if we can make what you know, if we can make our nut 
doing that, then I'm fine. Doing it the way you want it. Yeah, do it the way we want it. I mean, how much money do you need to make to be happy? They say yeah. there's a number out there. They say, I think it was between 60 and 70, but with inflation, it's probably closer to 70 and 80,000 a year is what you need to make to basically cover your the things that your securities, yeah. you know, like health insurance and like a safe place to live yeah. and like, you know, food, like having like regular food. Uh, and you can do that with like 70 to 80,000 a year and like have security, right? Um, beyond that, it's a drug. Money's a drug. You'll Man, never have enough. I have, what do I have? Like six places. I have six businesses, I think. And like, what, what's enough? Right. Am I supposed to have 20? Right. Should I have 30? The best thing about those businesses is that they've allowed other people to get their stake, to get the equity in the businesses. That's the very best part yeah, about we're gonna it. We're going to get into that. That's the very best we're gonna part. We're going to get into that. But we haven't even talked about your early career yet. So we're just <laughs> on the tear. But I do want to add one thing before we move on. What's happening when you're vulnerable with people is that you increase trust. When you lay out your vulnerabilities, it's what happens when a dog lays on their back. When a dog lays on its back, when you approach it, it's literally revealing its vulnerable side, its gut. And, and why it does that is because it, it wants to show you I'm not a threat. I'm vulnerable right now. And when you, what the way humans do that is we share information, you know, like if I give you information that will put me in a place where I'm vulnerable, I'm basically saying you can trust me. And that opens like that opens up the relationship. And if you can strengthen trust, like trust is the glue in a relationship, right? So by, by being vulnerable, you're increasing that, that bond with the guests and that guest is going to have a connection with you and they're going to come back. And I think that's what's happening. It's the only way I know how to be, really, yeah. Eric. It, it's and it's, it's what Luis said. You know, just be yourself, yeah. and that's what I've been. That's what I've done. Right. And so, let's go to the beginning, man. Where does it make sense right. to start sharing your story? Because you you started in '92, you said. Yeah. You opened yeah. your first bar in 2008. Yeah. So, yeah. like, when did you? At what point were you like, "This is my career"? Well, I was. You know, I got out of the Navy. I went to school. I, I graduated high school in '84, and then I went to uh, college, like everybody. Um, the eighties were wide open. Um, there were, there was a lot of extracurricular things going on. Uh, we were all celebrating our post high school freedom. Right. Um, what was your freshman year GPA? Uh, I'm not sure. I had, <laughs> well, you know, I had, uh, mine was I a had, 1.18. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to steal your thunder, Eric, but I had a, uh, 0. 0.0, 0.06. Damn. Zero not point. I had a point zero a zero zero point six point nine, a two six. You're making me look good right now. And a one one four, and I should have flunked out after my third semester, but back then they were switching from ledgers like paper notes to computers, so I beat the system, um, and then eventually after my two and a half semesters, or no after. After five semesters, I guess, after two and a half years, um, it caught up with me, and they put me on probation. I couldn't return for a semester. I moved back home. Uh, my parents go, why don't you join the military? Your brother did the military. He loved it. Why don't you try it? And I remember thinking, the shirt on my back, they bought me. So I got to do what they say. Um, so I joined the Navy, and I did real well. Um, I did five years of the Navy, and then got out in 92, and – I wanted to redeem myself. I wanted to, to prove that that uh, that I could do this. I could do college the right way rather than the way I did it in the 80s. Um, so I took classes. For every F I made at ECU, 
I had to make an A to turn that into a C, a 2, 2.0. Uh, and I graduated. I mean, I, I didn't graduate. The, the, I got into Carolina as a, as a junior transfer with a 2.8, which seems really low. But when you think of the 70 hours of Fs that I had um, – Balance that out. Yeah, he balanced it out. It was yeah. amazing. I worked yeah. really, really. I probably worked harder to get into UNC than I did when I was at UNC. So I had a friend that owned a bar in Chapel Hill, and he and I used to party together uh, in the eighties. And, and uh, when I got to Chapel Hill in ninety two, I asked if he'd give me a job, and he did. He gave me a job bartending. So I learned how to bartend. Now it was an under underage bar. A lot of freshmen would come, and they would have dollar night on Wednesdays. So the people would pay a dollar for the drinks, and uh, they were in cups. So it was really just highballs, highball after highball after highball, fast. They wanted their drinks really, really fast. And um, that's where I learned my speed. And then there was a bar up the street, a really, really, like a great bar, like where Harry would have met Sally, just like this great, vittable bar in town. And um, it, was the, it was the standard. And uh, – and they were needed. They needed a bartender. And one of the guys came and asked me. And he heard I was a good bartender, and he asked me. And, and I remember at the time I thought, "Well, I'm making 140 dollars a night. You know, I'm I'm catching fish. I'm doing well. I don't need." To. He's like, "You're going to do fine. You know, come over." So I went over there, Henderson Street Bar, and and uh, that's where I learned how to be a barman. Um, I think um, that's where I learned how to talk to the guests. That's learned where well, I was just going to ask, what does it mean to be a barman? It sounds like a prof- like the, a professional uh, evolution for you in your career where you went from being a bartender yeah. to a barman. Yeah, I think it means – now, there's also this term mixologist, which I don't ever think I was a mixologist. Um, but yeah, it's I, a I, little... think a, I think a barman means uh, someone that – I think it's everything you just talked about. Someone that knows how to run a bar. Yeah. Someone that knows. Someone that knows that – there, there's a guy sitting here that just went to the bathroom and he's been in there five minutes. Is everything okay with him? While you're making a drink for this person here who's, who might have his, his fifth drink, which is too much, so you're watching him. And then there's a couple over there in the, in the back corner where they're arguing, so you want to make sure that that's not – that stays, stays under control yeah. or whatever. So it's just the person it's that like can the run all that stuff. Like one thing too is like – one thing I've learned from listening to bartenders who have been on the show is like – like when you have people sitting at the bar, right? And like the the mastery, the art of getting them to talk to each other and like knowing enough about two different people and being like, oh, you should go talk to Johnny yeah. down there yeah. because you guys have this in common. Yeah. And it's just, it's managing the room, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. having your gauge, your hand on the gauge. Yeah. And it's kind of like a, what a good host would do. Right. You know, they're reading the room too. They're, they're controlling the flow of the, 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 the like the, the energy, Right. I talk about that when I'm when I'm training staff. I'm like treat people like they're at your home. And um, then I learned a lot of the young kids these days don't have people over to their house. <laughs> they go out to places. Right. So when I would say, you know, you're gonna treat them like a guest in your own home, they don't know what that means. I gotta start inviting people. I think what also happened recently is the pandemic kind of broke some habits because we weren't allowed to have people over for a while. Yeah. You Just know, do a supper club. Right. We got locked into our like our you know our infinite amount of streaming services yeah yeah, yeah. and then um, the video games yeah exactly. you play those um you know there's one game that. i never really got into it I'm gonna, if i'm being completely honest when during the pandemic ironically uh i got hooked on a video game well there was one video game i started playing when i was living with a friend a few years back and he got me hooked it's called the rocket league i'm embarrassed to be saying this <laughs> i don't know it. i don't it's know literally it. cars playing <laughs> soccer it's the most childish things ever but what i like is because every match only lasts five minutes so it's like a short bursts of like it's not like the a quick gratification yeah you're not locked in for hours on end yeah. 
Um, and it's it's like a competi- it's a competition against yourself really because like you have to get better at the game to like rank up and play to, to make the game more fun yeah. because other people are better and like there's you're constantly like learning different ways to manipulate the car anyway it's fun i recently got rid of my xbox because i'm trying to put more energy yeah. into the business yeah. it's it's bad yeah. like i i have an addictive personality like i'll be the first person to admit it well you know this this isn't a dress rehearsal the only life we got yeah so we got to make the most of it but so um so i'm bartending and i'm learning a lot about it now i never wanted to own i never wanted to own my own bar never ever ever i knew two people that own bars and both of their kids were in trouble with the law they were hard to they were just crazy kids and um so i never wanted to own a bar even though i was really good at bartending i never never thought i would do it now time keeps moving i finish up my degree at unc and um I go and be a school teacher. Is that in Raleigh, UNC? UNC is in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill. UNC sorry. Chapel Hill. Which is like next door, right? Yeah, like it's like 30 minutes away. It's, yeah. it's hard for me to like get like put my like, to get a grasp on North Carolina sometimes because it's to get like the, they call it like the triangle. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. And there's no like like water for some reason. Like I, if, I don't, if I don't see like water, I can't gauge like how far things are from each other. Like you look at it on the map. Yeah, it's just so hard for me to wrap my mind around. Like you need water to. to geog- well, I'm from New Hampshire, it. so like I can t- I can look and be like, okay, like that that coast like kind of helps yeah. you like yeah put it into perspective. I don't know. Like for, when, when you look when you're looking at a mass of land, like you're just like, where is everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah I digress. Yeah. So you, I think there's parts of New Hampshire that's like 26 miles apart. You, you can from, fit all of New England and Texas. <laughs> I see what you mean though, like with the with like the like a sliver of land with with Canada on one side or yeah for some reason it just helps me like visualize where things yeah, are yeah. I don't know so I'm yeah I'm at UNC and um I finish up my degree and and um I go I be a school teacher and I do that for 2 years really really hard I couldn't even call the roll it's so hard to call the roll I had a parent call and say you know how many kids how many days have my son missed and I'm like how many do you want him to miss um it's just really really hard so then I went back to UNC to go to graduate school uh, to start. I started a nonprofit organization sending at-risk kids to camps, and I did. we did two of those trips. But I didn't know how to set it up for, to have long-term sustainability. And at that time, I thought I was going to be like a social entrepreneur. That's what I would, that was my career that was going to be. You kind of are as a bartender, bar owner. Well, you can still do those things <laughs> yeah. to donate the money. Yeah. But, so that's what I was going to do. Um, now, in the back, i got to mention this part because in the back of my brain – like who I am is this my narrative is this is this person that God's given tremendous amount of gifts and blessings to, but in his own head thinks in my own head I think I'm not worth my self worth is really really shitty really low, so I had these I flunked out of college, so then I had to redeem myself right. I'm from this rural North Carolina redneck area of North Carolina where we had. There's racism and all this stuff, and God gave me the wings to get out of there. Um, so I'm, I have this, like, I'm driven to be better. Like, I feel like I have these gifts, and I want to use them all. If I waste them, then, then – and this is truly how I feel. I, I, don't, I, I don't know how this is going to sound, but, but if, I feel like if I waste them, then I'm not doing – my purpose in life isn't really being fulfilled, whatever that purpose is. So I have these gifts, and – but I don't think that highly of myself, even though I have these gifts. 
And my therapist is amazed at this. He's like, because people say so many nice things about you, but when you're in therapy and you talk about yourself, it's just horrendous, you know, the things that you say or think about yourself. And, um, I mean, it is what it is, I guess. So that's part of this authenticity part. So, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking I'm never going to, even though I'm really, really good at bartending, I'm not going to, I'm not going to own a bar. Um, I'm going to do something like law school or social entrepreneurship. So I get that, that I get this certificate program and, and, and uh, nonprofit management from UNC. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go to law school now. I can, because I can work with these at risk community and I can send the kids to camps and they can ride horses and learn about that. And then the parents, oftentimes it's one parent. Um, I can do some legal work for them and help them better themselves. So I'm just trying to uplift. Like I want everyone to thrive. I want everybody to do well. I want, I want everybody. I want you. I want you to do well. <laughs> Whatever it is, <laughs> I want you to do well. I mean, we're all this. We all have these gifts, and we want to use them. We need to use them for good. So, so I'm doing that. I apply to law school, and um, I'm thinking that everything's it, like the story that I had, where I flunked out, and then I redeemed myself, and I'm. And I'm, uh, I'm doing all this goodness, this good work for these at-risk kids. I'm thinking I have a really, really good story. Um, so I apply to law school, and I get waitlisted. And I, I got like 160 on my LSAT. I had to score. This is the test you take. They told me I should score two points more, so 162, which doesn't sound like much, but it's like 4,000 people, um, candidates. Um, so I'm, that's my plan. My plan is to take the test again, and, and I'm going to be a lawyer and then do this social entrepreneurship stuff on the side. Well, and now in law school, that law school, and I didn't know this at the time, but being a lawyer was going to fill this huge void, this big hole in my heart. That Did was, you become a lawyer? No, no, no. Oh, I was going to no, say, no, no, I see no, that. Applying to law school. Got it. Um, was going to fill this, it felt like, I felt like, okay, I made it. I made it to the top of the mountain. Um, and much of this is because my father, you know, drilling in me, um, you're not worth anything. You're lazy. Mm. You're not going to amount to anything, you know, all these different things. Um, so that's who I am. That's the context of who I am when I'm applying to law school. So 19 or 2000, I think it's like 2004 or something like that. Um, then I meet Megan. I meet my wife, my bride. And when I meet her, uh, everything just gets filled. And I'm whole. I don't feel like I'm – I just feel like I'm whole, you know, and, mm-hmm. and any kind of voids I had, I don't need to fill with law school. So – and then that thinking that I had where where I didn't want to own a bar because I, my kids were going to be in trouble with the law and I wasn't going to be able to discipline them and all this kind of stuff. And it was just not going to be a wholesome environment. Because you weren't around? Yeah, yeah, because it's a bar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I thought but people think of bars, Couldn't they think of condensation or con- con- condemnation. What's the word I'm looking for? Negative association. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a negative. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember at church when I got became a member at church. I remember um, I didn't want to tell them that I owned a bar, and I said that. <laughs> I said I don't want y'all to know this, but I own a bar. And they go, Gary, we all know you own a bar, you know, and and we're Presbyterians. You ought to, you know, there's a drink called a Presbyterian. So. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, but I was just, that was my insecurities, you know, yeah. that was my low self-esteem and all that low self-worth. And, uh, and that's who I was when I met Megan, all that changed. Why did all, she change you? 
she felt man, I don't know. She's wonderful. Eric, she's wonderful. She's 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 because she saw value in you, because you felt her love, she made you feel like you were worth yeah, something? Yeah, She made me want to be better, and she validated all these things that I had. And she, she helped me understand that I, I'm not this person that I thought I was, mm. that there's goodness in me. She brought me close to church, uh, which that, that's not for everybody. You know, this isn't I mean, I have thoughts. I, grew, I, was, I was raised Roman Catholic. Yeah, um, me I, too. Yeah. I, you still have the guilt? What's that? The guilt? No. Catholic guilt. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, for me, like, it's honest. Like, I went to a place where I probably didn't believe in something, you know, like where I thought, you know, it's just science. Like, we're yeah. just, we're just these, like, lives on a rock floating through space, and it's right. that. But the more I started looking into, like, in- infinity, and when you start really studying, like, what is possible, like, with the, le- the more we learn about space and the more we look into science, it's like, what was the big bang? You know, like was that the beginning of um, a new life that like started what is today? Cause life is constantly growing and expanding. Right. Right. Was that like, was that the beginning of, of two other life forms coming together and creating something yeah. like, cause it's all relative. Right. Like, right, right. like you go, if you look up or you look down, it goes for infinity. You know, if you by that, I mean, if you get bigger, you get smaller. Theoretically it's infinity. Right. So we don't. We're just beginning to understand this, like what the idea of infinity infinity means. But if it, that is true, then the likelihood of there being a creator, you know, or we us coming from a father, you know, is plausible. So it's almost making me become like the more I look into science, it's like, like it's almost kind of like full circle, you know, like now it makes you believe that there could be a god. You're the the stuff you're talking about is much more advanced than than uh. Than how I think, but I could see where you're headed with that, and and I would say, I'm gonna yeah. say I'm sold on it, but I'm saying it's Possibly. opening my mind to it. You know, maybe as I get older, I might become more religious. Yeah, because there is security in that. I think knowing there's a that, lot of security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the sure. faith, yeah, yeah, for sure. There's definitely benefits, and I think that there's definitely benefits in religion um, for society. Getting people to all get along and believe in the same thing yeah. helps us get like, go much further. I think you know? we're, you know, my friend Jamil is from, he's Palestinian and um, he was kicked out. His family was kicked out of uh, Jerusalem. And uh, I talk, I was just fascinated. He's, and he's, he says, Gary, we, we all want the same thing. We just, there's just different ways of going about it. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. This, yeah. this stuff's interesting. I I, uh, I don't talk much about, uh, you know, I don't testify or whatever, but it's it is part of part of who I am and how I think. But um, but yeah, I met Megan, and then so this is two thousand four. You met Megan. Yeah, think, you opened your bar in two thousand eight. I think it's two thousand four, two thousand five. Yeah, over two thousand eight. So she, but you, oh, so so I didn't want to own a bar when I met her. My heart is filled. Um, and then I'm thinking it was kind of stupid. You're still working in bars though. Yeah. I'm still bartending. I've been bartending the whole time Yeah, yeah. since 92, uh, except for when I was taking classes Uh, and when I was, when I was a school teacher for a couple of years in Charlotte. But, but, uh, but, um, when I was in grad school, I didn't bartend for that certificate program. I didn't bartend then. I wanted to focus just on, on, uh, on getting that degree on on that, on on that program because undergrad, I always worked and I never had time to. You just sort of regurgitated what you learn. I never had time to create my own stuff, but in grad school you create stuff. So, so um, that's what I'm doing. And 
let's see. And then Megan comes along and I fall in love and I'm more excited about marrying her than I am about being a lawyer. And I asked her to marry me. She said, oh, she said, yes. It happens all the time. She said, yes. So we got married. And then I was going to, once we got married, I was less concerned about helping these at-risk kids and going to law school. And I was more concerned about just starting my own family. Fulfilling your, your own needs. Yeah. 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 But when you fulfill it, when you fill it, you got to fill your cup first before you can start to, and that's when your cup starts to overflow. And it's not until your cup overflows that whatever lands in the, like the, you know, the saucer or like the, the, the what do they yeah, call the that? Tea, the tea, yeah, plate or whatever. The plate. Yeah. Like yeah. that's what you give to other people. You gotta, you Is gotta that how take, it's supposed to work? I think so. That's what I've, <laughs> that's what I've learned. But you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta fulfill your own needs before you can be ex- expected to show up for anybody else i know they talk about like when the plane's going down yeah, put your, oxygen put, yeah put it on yeah. you first right right um i think now is a good time to take take a break and thank our sponsors okay and we'll come back and start talking about how you opened your first bar restaurant unstoppable is partnering with core children of restaurant employees core children of restaurant employees invites you to learn more about their mission and their fall campaign serving up hope core is an industry focused nonprofit that provides financial grants to restaurant employees with children who face a life altering medical crisis or natural disaster serving up hope is a national fundraising campaign and an opportunity for the restaurant industry to come together to serve those who will serve us daily there is complete flexibility for when and how you raise money and core has ideas to help whether you choose to make a flat donation or fundraise through in-store promotions core provides turnkey resources to make your partnership as simple and successful as possible it does not stop there brands who commit to raising fifteen thousand dollars or more for core during this campaign receive logo recognition on the wall of hope a nationally promoted landing page that highlights the companies that have chosen to come together for our industry choose to participate and you will help build a culture of caring and demonstrate your support Support for employees and those that qualify for a grant across the country. More than 70% of core grantees are single mothers and they critically need your help to continue to provide funds. So why wait? Showcase your commitment and leadership to help employees in our industry and sign up for the Serving Up Hope campaign today. Visit coregives.org to learn more. Together, we can serve up hope for restaurant families this fall. Action. I love it. All right, you ready? Yeah. yeah We're yeah. back. And uh, the year in your timeline is 2004, 2005. Your lovely wife helps you see the value in yourself. When you recognize this value, this newfound value, all these things you were telling yourself you couldn't do, you now can do. What was the next step? So um, she says, let's start a bar. Yeah. I said, Megan, I don't know about this law school thing. She says, she goes, let's start a bar. And um I said, okay, let's do it. And through, I don't know if other people do this, but I've always, when I was, you know, partying in the 80s, and when I would go places, I would always notice, oh, that's nice. Like here, like, oh, that's a great color green. And that green goes well with the brass. That's a nice uh, detail. So I'll make a note. And then I guess my ADHD stuff, there's like a, there's like a brilliance in there somewhere (laughs) (laughs) that allows you to remember all those things. Um, so I've just noticed things. So there's pieces of the Crunkleton, the original Crunkleton. Um, there's pieces of it that come from different places uh, that I've you know, been to, that I've experienced. Um, 
And uh, so she says, let's, let's do a bar. And, and, and my friend Mark, Mark Pons, he said, he, he was telling me about what was happening in New York with egg white drinks and this cocktail renaissance. And he says, Gary, you should do that. And I think if people that knew me would probably think that if I opened a bar, it would probably be a sports bar with chicken wings. But that's not really like who I am. I uh, drinking a Miller High Life. I like the Out high of a bottle. Yeah, I like the high <laughs> life. Yeah, I like the high life. But but uh, I like the high life of the bottle. Um, I, you know, there's there's just I like antiques. I like nice music. I like to see civilized Bon Vivant stuff. Um, even though I might look like like I'm a Bears fan and and, <laughs> <laughs> and like Dick is the the god or something. But but uh, but. Pons goes, he should, you should do something like this. And I go, yeah. So I go, I'm thinking, I'm going to make this bar like it's my swan song. Although I'm not dying, but I want it to make it, I want to make it just be beautiful. So I came up with this idea and, and, and this look and everything you see, if you go in the bar, everything you see is there um, that, you know, that I created. And, and uh, I remember people did it. I wanted this, I wanted this this particular type of furniture, this artsy crafts furniture, mission style furniture. Um, I wanted that furniture and, and, uh, I was already emotionally attached and I, uh, looked around to see, you know, who could make me the best mission style furniture. And what there was my mission style. It's artsy crafts. It's uh stickly Gustav stickly. Um, I'm not cultured enough. It's all, <laughs> it's, 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 it's 90 degree corners. Okay. Uh, it's sturdy, okay. quarter sawn oak, real durable, utilitarian. If I looked up mission furniture, would it be pretty obvious? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you would. It would. It. So uh, there was just one chair called the Eastwood chair. And I wanted like eight of them in the bar. This beautiful chair. And then I found out those chairs were $12,000 each. Damn. Now, I'm already emotionally uh, attached to this stuff, so I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to make this work? So there wasn't anyone that was a dealership that had a dealership for Warren Heil Furniture. And Warren Heil, I thought, was the best company to make reproduction, Stickley Furniture. There was a company in New York, in the mountains of New York, the Catskills, but they were like a three-man shop. So it would take two years, Scale, to, yeah. to, a long time to get enough furniture. This place in, um, in Pasadena, California, Warren Heil, uh, he could have it right then. So there was no one selling his stuff in North Carolina. And I asked, well, can I be a rep for it? So I'm going to make like a furniture store. And she said, sure. So I'm telling them that I'm going to be a bar that's going to be an art gallery and a furniture store. And they said, what? They're scratching their heads. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, are you just trying to get this at wholesale? And, and I, I go, well, I got to get it at wholesale. Um but I'm not just trying to get it for wholesale. No, this is what I want to do. So the, the furniture that people were sitting in was going to be the furniture that you had and were selling? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's cool. I mean, I, I like that. You see that happen a lot in the world uh, where people just like are, they, they literally crowdsource every aspect of their business and they're like the art on the walls. You can buy that art, the furniture, the table you're sitting at. You can buy this right. table. Right. I love that. I think it's a great way to bring your community into to the mix. You know? Well, that was that's a good way to pitch it the way yeah. you did. You're a marketing guy. I did it because that's the only way I could afford to do it. <laughs> so, and the furniture markup. I don't know if you know about furniture markup, but it's like seventy percent. Yeah. So I got uh, it was twenty six thousand dollars for all the furniture, and it would have been, 
I guess whatever the number was, uh, that's that's thirty percent of whatever. So I guess it would have been like hundred grand with the furniture. Um, so I set the business up. There was an artist in Alabama that I loved, and I thought if I ever had the money to buy his art, I would. Michael Banks was his name, and I remember my wife going, uh, "Oh, let's go down." She says, "Let's go down to uh, Birmingham together. We'll do it like a little couples trip, starting our first business." And I go, "No." Because I didn't think she would like the art. Um, it's, it's, it's different. The art's different. Um, and I thought, no, if we go down there, you're not going to like the art. You're not going to like the artist. And I have a certain way of talking with these people that you're not, you know, you're more Language. of like landscape yeah. and, and still, um, still print or still uh, whatever, that, when they paint something right. still. Um, anyway, Megan hit it off super with the artist. And we went down with 10 grand. And we came, I thought we could get maybe 10 pieces, and we came back with 22 pieces. And it was wonderful. Wow. Was wonderful. But you never, that, the vision that you were pitching this furniture company of selling furniture, that never came to, is that what happened? I sold furniture once. Okay. The, uh, <laughs> it's a funny story, um, if, you, if you'll indulge me. The, the, uh, so I had to show the Warren Heil that I was, was going to be a furniture store. So, which meant I had to put an ad in a magazine. So I did. It was eight hundred dollars. It was a full page ad, and I had to send them that that magazine to show that we were going to sell furniture. And then they allowed me to be the dealer, um, which was which was really really cool. Uh, there's a company. There's a magazine called The Sun, and this guy Sai runs it. And he said, uh, "Someone told me that you sell Warren Howe furniture." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, we've got it." And um. He came down and, and he had all these printouts of from Mission Living. This is the website where you could buy this stuff. And he said, "Well, I want to get this one." He had it circled to show me the printout. He says, "This is their price. What will your price be?" And I said, "Well, I don't know, um, but it'll be cheaper than that. I promise you." And he thought, I think he thought I was BSing him. I wasn't BSing him. I really didn't know. Um, and then he said he turned the page and said, "said uh, How much will this be?" And he's he's playing full, like full price for it, and I finally got tired of him asking me like itemizing each thing and, and asking me these questions. I went to the office and I got my 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 uh, buyer yeah. my buyer book that has all the wholesale pricing in it, and I said here, I showed him how to navigate yeah. it. I said find the piece of furniture you want. Here's the cost for it. Add ten percent, and that's what you're going to pay. And uh, we did. So I only sold furniture once. <laughs> that's funny i'm curious so okay um going forward like take me to the point let's let's, let's try to like fast forward to like your you you found the location right so you're looking for the furniture yeah. you got the furniture um <clears throat> there's a big part of the story that i don't think has come out yet either that you wanted to focus on liquors that were not necessarily from the state right because um what is it called north carolina is a state that um, it's a controlled, yeah. controlled state. So you have to buy from the state, right. essentially. Right. Um, but you can't necessarily buy, what was it, like arti- like antique liquor? What's the term for it? Oh, the antique stuff? Yeah. Oh, well, that was that was in 2015. Oh, it's 2015. Um, yeah, so, but, well, I'm talking about the liquor that you serve where you basically, where, where maybe I, I think this is part of your story, where you changed the law. So you could. Yeah, that was 2015. That was 2015. Yeah. Okay, we're getting a little but, ahead there. So, well, so in 2008, when we opened, there were probably – the way it works in North Carolina is you have a catalog, and you buy whatever they have. Yeah. And in 2008, there were probably 
No shit. There were probably 20 bourbons in that catalog. But there's 150 different brands right. Just out, coming out of nine distilleries. So, and, and I wanted to have all these products. The first thing, since I was doing this old, since I was doing this old cocktail, uh, you know, cocktail renaissance, these old cocktails, I needed to get chartreuse. I needed to get maraschino liqueur. Um, I had to get ingredients that, that, uh, that were used in these old drinks. A lot of the drams from the olden days weren't even made. So I remember when we first opened, I was making my own um, bitters. There were about five different bitters, a handful of bitters, and they Ango was the best. Peychaud's was available. It was good. But the Fee Brothers had all these different flavors, and they weren't, they weren't particularly that – I didn't think they were worthy of serving. Sorry, Joe Fee, but, but, uh, but anyway, I, had, I wouldn't make my own bitters. And, and then the, the ginger syrup, a lot of this stuff, uh, the, the quinine syrup, ton, uh, you know, for tonic syrup, mm-hmm. we were making that. Um, so we're making a lot of stuff in-house so that we can duplicate these old cocktails. So that's happening, which is really exciting. Um, and then I want to have, like I wanted a wall, like the Grateful Dead had this, this sound of the wall of sound. And it was all just speakers. So I wanted to have a wall of liquor. And I had the shelving built for it. It's, uh, you know, it's the size of this walls here with shelves. And, um... I'd have a lot, so a lot of 20 by 10, 20 by 15. It's 30 by uh, 12. Okay. So I wanted to have uh, I wanted to have a lot of spirits and the state only offered so many. So I figured out, I met with this woman in Raleigh at the state office and figured out, I learned how to uh, purvey stuff, how to, how to code, how to get spirits coded. And what I would do is Eric, if you had, if you made a banana liqueur, that was really, really good. Um, like Tipis Fugit banana liqueur, and that's a good product. All the Tipis Fugit stuff is good. I would say, hey, Eric, I want to have your product in North Carolina. If I order it, will you send it? And you'll say, yeah, because you want to get the product out. Right. Uh, so that's how I set up. And then, so I probably, this is going to sound like BS, but I probably, like, my wife would get mad for me saying this, but I, like, single-handedly <laughs> added probably, I don't know, uh, 1500 spirits too. Yeah, that's crazy, man. But what's cool about this story and it's a I think the lesson for the listeners is don't take no for an answer. Man, you can't. Yeah. You can't. Like don't stop at no because there's they just ask, "Well, what how can I?" Yeah. Well, you can't. Why can't I? Right. Oh, because this rule, how what what do I have to do to change that rule yeah. or what do I have to do to circumnavigate that? There's always a way if you if you're willing to turn on Again, the frontal lobe's coming into yeah. the, the, the mix here. Like you solve problems. But if you say I can't, your frontal lobe, because it's you we do a lot to save energy with our brains. Like we're actively trying like our brain is actively trying to save energy and not work because it takes up it takes up a ton of energy. So like if you can find a path of least resistance to stop spending energy, your brain will take that shortcut. So if you say it's not possible, your brain's just gonna go, Nope. And it's gonna stop trying. But if you ask how then your brain will just start trying to fill in the voids, and it will find a way. When I was chomping at the bit to jump in, I didn't want to. No, uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to interrupt you. But when you own a business, this is a. I think this is a good lesson. When you own a business, you run it, and when the when the poop hits the fan, you're the one that has to deal with it. You got to hold it. You got to clean it up. You got to take care of it. It's when the bills aren't paid, you got to deal with that. Yeah. These people that might tell you no. 
It's your poop. The sun's going to come up in yeah. the morning for them. They're getting their pay. You know, you got to if, if if you want if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, um, then you got to make it. You, there's some savviness there that that or ignorance that uh Probably that makes you want to do it. <laughs> so for me, I wanted a wall of liquor, that wall of sound, like the Grateful Dead, and I had to go out and get the products. So now, uh, maybe there's a hundred. Uh, bourbons you could choose from, you know, that you get in the state. So the solution, the only reason why it wasn't an option is because if the the state didn't buy it, then they couldn't sell it to you. But right. there's nothing stopping the state from buying what you need. So that you you basically you you learn the process of, of what it takes to get the state to buy something, right? And, and pe- then you did the work. And people will people will say people will poo poo controlled states, but they serve a good purpose. Like John. John that owns this bar. Yeah, thank you, John, for letting us use your space. Um, he's he's wandering he's, around right now. He's not a competitor of mine because he's in a different city, but he might have the, he might want the same thing that I want. So we have you know we're working to to make those things happen. And, yeah. and uh, gosh, I remember back then you had to buy the whole case for special order. So I would have and I would have twelve bottles of Creme de Valette. Um, last few ten years, <laughs> <laughs> yes. No one wanted to split with me because they didn't like they didn't want the overhead. Yeah. And uh, you know, I was a bar, not a restaurant, so it was okay for me to have the overhead. My wife would, you know, she does the books, and she would say, "Man, you've got three hundred and sixty thousand dollars in inventory. <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be nice to have that money right would now?" That? That's, yeah, but so well, it is already liquid, technically, sort of. So uh, <laughs> in a bottle. So so that's happening, and I'm and I'm getting a reputation as knowing i think i'm getting a real, developing a reputation as having a great selection and people will walk in the bar and they'll say oh my god this is amazing it's like a it's like a museum of liquor and i would say well thank you i said but you know that's just money you know money buys all that it's easy to do that that's the easy part the hardest part is knowing what to do with each bottle right and that's what the staff here knows what to do and yeah. that's where i took my pride that the staff knew. So yeah, let's get into the evolution because we did jump. We like leap year, like just now, uh, seven years from two thousand eight to two thousand fifteen. Yeah. So bring us back to um, the actual like what, like what were your challenges? Knowing what you know now, going back through that process of opening your restaurant, like what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were getting started? You worked in a lot of restaurants, but you never owned a restaurant. Now, so I'm sure there are some things that, from an ownership perspective, you might have missed. Here's when I first opened the bar. I came from a bar where I would give things away. You know, if, if, a, if a regular came in, I would give him, like, maybe his fifth beer free. And you can't do that when you're the owner. And th- that regular at that old bar would come to my bar. And it was awkward that and he's on his fifth beer, and I'm not, you know, I'm charging him for it. Right. Uh, that, that, there's some character stuff there, you know, that, uh, that can be compromised. Um, I wish I wish I wouldn't have been giving those beers away when I didn't, you know, when I didn't own the bar. Um, well, there's a lot of people who, who do it intentionally because they know they might be losing the profit from that beer in that moment. Yeah, but they know that the lo- the lifetime yeah. sales. That's the argument. But you know, there's that saying: if you can't measure it, you can't do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This that's the defense is well, you know, I gave him a beer, and now he's going to come back, and it's probably true. But how do you, you know, if you and I play golf and I give you, we're playing for $5 a hole and I, you got a two foot putt and that's all pick it up. That's good. Then if I got a putt that's two and a half feet, I'm expecting you to say, 
That's good. You know, that's good. You know, or what? You know, who knows? How do you draw a line on it? Right. So, so it's, it's hard, but, but, uh, I don't think that one thing I've learned is that there's no right answer. There's just the answer <laughs> that makes sense for you and yeah. your, your unique situation. I let the, it the, drove me cool, crazy for the longest time because I was trying to find the answer. Was, there only could be one answer. There's so many answers. It depends. If you can't measure it, you probably shouldn't do it. And that's a great That's a good answer. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah. So, so that's happening. That's, that's something I learned quickly. Um, looking back at, you know, as, as like my evolution. Uh, the big thing I learned, the really, really, really big thing I learned about me was, was that I always paid well, always, you know, $10 an hour. Um, I always gave them health insurance because I wanted them to be healthy outside of work. Uh, I thought the healthier they are outside of work, the healthier they're going to be inside of work. And uh, I had a friend, Robert, who owns businesses, and I would ask him, you know, what do you think? And he's like, no, you can't do that. You know, you, you can't. There's no way you can run a business that way. So I spent, I spent, you know, we've been open 15 years, 13, 14 years, however long it's been. And I probably spent the first seven years thinking, um, I'm not a good business person because you're taking care of your employees. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like I'm never going to be that rich guy. How messed up is that? Oh, it's so messed up. And 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 now when I learned, I was it was it was got validated to me. Someone validated it. Said, yeah, this is the way you run business. This is how you do it. And um, it just goes back to what Louise said: is like be yourself. So so that's happening. I've got this great staff. We opened 2008. I had the same staff until about 2016. Um, Eight years. Yeah, same wow. staff. We added a couple, but it was the same core staff. And they all left for great reasons. They, they, Nat met a girl and moved to his farm in Virginia. Uh, Lauren, well, Christian, Christian, his girlfriend wanted to get married. And uh, he said, nah. And then it came around his, again. Wait, his girlfriend wanted to oh, get married to him. I guess. Yeah, she like, wanted to get married. Else? Wait, no, what? no, she wanted to get married. <laughs> And a Courtney, and um, he was like, "I'm not really sure." And Sorry, then, um, and then it came up again. It's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you either do it now or, or we're done. So, uh, so he married her, and then he he moved to DC. And then Lauren, um, I think she felt like since the crew was breaking up, uh, she she moved to DC or she moved to Atlanta. Um, and I think she she's married that guy she was dating too. So she was a man eater, but. But uh, I think they're married now. But, but um, yeah, I had a whole new staff. And so that happened in, in 2016. But in 2015, you asked about this antique spirit stuff. So check this out. So there are these pop – 2014 bourbon is taking off. It's exploding. Um, everybody wants it. It's hard to get bourbon. It's really hard to get bourbon. And people would come to my bar and say, well, how do you have these bourbons? How do you, how do you get all this stuff? And I'm like, man, I got fucking cases of it because I've been special ordering it for the last right. six years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Elbert T. Lee, I probably had six cases of Elbert T. Lee. And uh, you couldn't give it away. You couldn't give it away. Then after he died, it was crazy. Everybody wanted it. But but uh, I had so much bourbon, you know, because I was buying it, special order, by the case. So that's happening. And uh, I get a letter. I get this memo from from Orange County ABC, which is where I buy my, the county where I buy, where my bar is. And they say, uh, the state doesn't want to have a depot, one place that has all these spirits. And, uh, 
And so you're no longer getting Pappy Van Winkle. And we had Pappy Van Winkle, Julian Van Winkle, the owner. He'd come to the bar twice. And uh, we probably went through 17 cases with those two events of Pappy. You know, the 10-year, the 12-year. The the, we didn't have the rye all the way up to the 23-year. And um, Julian's a good guy. He's got a lot of grace. And, and so I called him, and I said, Julian, I've gotten cut off. They're not going to give me any more Pappy. And he says, well, we had a good run, Gary. Um, I'll send you a case each. So he sends it through to Raleigh, and then Raleigh to Raleigh ABC, Raleigh ABC to Orange ABC. And when I pick it up, there's only one bottle in each case. And uh, I was livid. I was livid. And there was a note saying that if, if you have a problem with this, contact such as such. So I'm sure you made that contact. I was livid. I was livid. <laughs> so I called Julian. I said, Julian, man, cut North Carolina off. We don't deserve to have your product. They've just pilfered. You know that case you sent that was from the bar? They've pilfered it. They've gone through it. There's one bottle each. And he said, welcome to pluralism. And I remember I didn't know what that meant. I looked it up. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I was mad. So my wife said, Megan says, well, Gary, you got to find the next, you have to find the next Pappy Van Winkle. I said, well, there's not. There's so much marketing involved with it, and, and it's not all that great of a product. It's not all that great of a bourbon. It's just it's so hard to get. That's why everyone loves it. Um, I, think, I said, the best spirits in the world, I said, are, I mean, the best bourbon America's ever made are from the 1950s, but I can't sell that because it's not, the state doesn't have it. The state buys what's currently being made. And that's limited, and then they sell it to the bars or on-premise, the bars and restaurants. So I had to figure out how I could get. Did you ever call that number? I want to know that. Did I recall? Yeah. No. Oh. No. <laughs> you know the guy that said call me? Yeah. No. Uh-uh. Oh, I was curious how that conversation No, I didn't, no, uh, I didn't call him. Um, and for anybody who's no, curious. No, it's a losing. It's a losing proposition. Right. Yeah. So pluralism, a condition or system in which two or more states, groups, principles, sources, or of authority, etc., coexist. Yeah. The practice of holding more than one office or church benefice, or benefice at a time. So wait, I don't still understand how you use I it. I guess. I guess uh, or North Carolina ABC grabbed their bottles, yeah, and then it went to Orange County. Orange County grabbed their bottles, and then they left one. But you ordered, you ordered everything for yourself. Everything was coming to the yeah. Everything was you, coming to the bar. Like you placed this order for you for you. Yeah, he said, and, and they and everyone else went took, after it, pilfered it. So they have to pay. Didn't did yeah. you pay for it? I paid for one bottle. Oh. When it comes, you you buy what uh, when it comes, you buy what's there. Okay, so you tell the state what what you want. They buy it, and then when it comes in, you buy it from them. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. And if there's – I'm bringing – this is crazy. This is a different subject, but, like, I remember High West when I reached out to uh, Dave Parker, I think, um, about High West. It might not be Dave Parker. He might be Compass Box. But I said, I want to get your product, and they sent some product, and uh, some bottles were opened. It's like someone in the warehouse just went and you know and tasted it. You is, you can't sell a bottle that's been opened, can you? Is that legal? Uh, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to get it sealed, right? But what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah, right. it came. So yeah, but um, so I said these antique spirits are the best. That's those are better than than the, the best bourbon America's ever made was in the 1950s. That's what I believe. So uh, Megan says, well, you got to create something and allow us to sell it. 
And I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll figure this out. Um, and this is like when you're thinking, like, how do you pivot? Like a lot of us pivoted during COVID. But this is 2015. Bourbon is getting – I'm known as a bourbon bar, although I think we had we had all the Del Maguey uh, mezcals. We're, we should just be known as a spirits bar. But people are pigeonholing us to bourbon, which is fine. Um, but if I'm taking this leadership role in bourbon, I need to be able to get bourbon. And I'm not, I'm not able to get it. They're going to cut me off because they don't want to have a depot. That was in quotations. They don't want to have a depot that has all the product, all the allocated product. I was livid because um, I'd done a lot of work to get this, a whole lot of work. And it wasn't overnight. It was, it was from 2008 on. Right. So um, I reach out to this Speaker of the House. No, no, they reach out to me. They reach out to me. They reach out to me because UNC is playing NC State in basketball, and they want to do a tasting with me. They asked for me before, like 4 o'clock before the game, and the game's at UNC. I said, okay, great, and they told me who it was. So they all come. There's 12 of them that come, and there was one person there that was, that was really, really uh, powerful. You could just tell the way they treated him. Right. I don't know who he was, but, but we all did these tastings, and they all wanted Pappy Van Winkle. So we tasted the Pappy. But that when they left, Four Roses was what most of them really, really enjoyed because we did the Pepsi Challenge where you taste them right. all next to each other. And uh, Was that the, one, the 1950s Four Roses? No, 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 no. This was current day whiskey. So then we wrap up our tasting, and they go, the Speaker of the House says, uh, Gary, if there's ever anything we can do for you, let us know. And I said, well, actually, there is something you can do for me. And I pull out this, this medicinal uh, pint from Prohibition. Pre-prohibition, and um, no pro- prohibition medicinal pint, and I pull it out and I say, they're passing it around, holding it like a baby, and I say, excuse me, um, there's a guy I know that has uh, old cars like Model Ts, and he has the state gives him a, a license plate called Antique that allows him to drive that ro- that car on the roads because it's not up to DOT standards. Right. I said, I want to have that license plate that allows me to sell these old spirits. I said, it's illegal for me to have that bottle that you're all passing around. It's illegal for me to have that in here because it didn't have a stamp on it. And I can't get it stamped because it's not being made currently. I can only get stuff that's currently made. So I want a, a waiver that allows me to sell these antique spirits. And Mr. the Speaker of the House says, Gary, we're going to get it passed for you. And then... uh they called like two, and I thought they're politicians, so I just thought they were, you know, telling you what you wanted to hear. Yeah, to move yeah, yeah. on. Sure, yeah, yeah. But about two weeks later, they called, and uh, one of the guys says, "I'm the, I'm the bill writer for the speaker, Mr. Speaker, and um, what do you want it to say?" And I uh, and I, uh, I wrote an outline, and I emailed it to them, and then they, they sent me an email back. No, they sent me a text saying, "Don't email." Although they told me to email, they sent me a text saying, "Don't email." Text everything to us. <laughs> so. uh but they had that outline, and um, I wrote all. I wrote it all. I wrote the bill, and then they add. They they wrote a bill from that. Those that you know all those requirements, and then it passed. So they called it the Crunkleton Bill. Nice. It was pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I'm the bill I'm, named after you, man. This hillbilly guy from rural <laughs> North Carolina now has a bill named. Yeah, after yeah. It was a. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty cool. So, uh, so it passed, and we had all these. There's a cabinet on the wall with all these antique spirits, and I've had them. You know, I've had. I've well, tasted so many I, of them. I'm kind of that's a big part of your your draw, right? The, yeah, being the known wall. as a guy, the wall who yeah. has these antique spirits. Is there a, like a limit 
like a lifetime on this model because antique spirits yeah are limited yeah i've learned that so <laughs> so i was curious about that you can't do it forever i mean Mm-mm. it's amazing so this has been happening for me since 2015 and i thought i'd seen all there is to see i saw a bottle the other day that i'd never heard of um and i would have bought it. it was on the secondary market i would have bought it but i was too late but i'd never heard of it and uh the old stuff, the reason why it's better is the barrel entry proof is lower on the old stuff. I'm giving my secrets. The, the barrel entry proof. So yes. when it goes into the barrel, yeah. the, the forward ages, the proof is lower. Yeah. The flavor from the barrel is in the water. It's not in the alcohol. So the more water you have, the more flavor you're going to get. So the lower the proof, the more water. I mean, I wonder why the water is better. Is it because they're making it with unfiltered... Like straight from like the well water. Well, they, in Kentucky, they they had the limestone shelf that filters the water, filters all the iron out of it. Um, at a long, a billion years ago, or whenever, when when we were all underwater, we were part of the ocean. This part of the ocean um, was a low part, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of minerals in the stones. Okay, from that, you know, from the the animals dying, you know, they drift to the bottom. So, so. Uh, there's a lot that goes into the water. But I don't know why, like, to answer your question, I don't know why the water picks up the flavors and not the alcohol. Hmm. But the water is what picks up the flavors of the oak, not the alcohol. Maybe the molecule's bigger. Yeah, I'm not a know. chemist. Um, you know, it's one, I, I heard, like, a, a statistic that a master distiller only gets, like, what, like five batches in their life or something like that because it takes 10 years, Right. Or something like that. Like, like every month they're probably making a new batch, but but you don't know the the batch like the the whiskey you make today. You you can't taste until right ten years from now. Well, it depends on the master distiller. For okay. it to be straight, it has to be two years, and then at least four years to not have an age statement. But some people, I would say, I don't want to speak for the master distillers, but the word on the street is that that uh, like Jimmy Russell liked eight-year-old stuff and booker no liked eight to ten years jimmy rutledge liked 10 to 12 years i mean you just gotta be taking some really good notes though They're yeah. like you know what yeah. did i do 10 years ago to make it come out like uh, this yeah. and if i want to recreate this yeah. i have to wait another 10 years to find out if it came out the same way and will i be able to remember exactly what it tasted like nah, they, know. they know it's crazy when you think about it if you and i started distillery today and we want to make whiskey we're not going to see a dime of profit for at least two years. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. So we'll make gin and vodka in the in the meantime. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was kind of crazy. I, I, I'm, I, I've been wanting to ask you this question. There's yeah. a book out there called Drunk. How we sipped, stumbled, wait, where is it? How we sipped, danced, and stumbled our way into society. Have you heard of this book? No. Uh-uh. Oh, man. It's, I think it would be right up your alley. Who wrote it's a, it? Uh, it's by Edward Slingerland. And he um, isn't anyone that's in the bar world, yeah. but like he just got obsessed. He wanted there wasn't a book that that took the 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 world of alcohol from an anthropological standpoint. So the the influence of alcohol on humanity over time, and he goes all the way back to when we start eating overripe fruit, and he follows he follows alcohol along this timeline until like current day. But it's a crazy book if you're someone who's passionate about alcohol, yeah. and you listen, like you it's on audio. 
but it, it just kind of puts a new perspective. It changed my relationship with alcohol personally. Like the world we live in right now, it's crazy to think that like distilled alcohol is only like a 200 year old invention. When you, maybe that number, maybe 300, it was in China. 300. 300, yeah, yeah 300, 300 year old invention, but still only 300 years. When we've been drinking alcohol from like the time we're like we're consuming alcohol from the time we're monkeys, industrialized. I mean, making it as a at a at a well is three hundred years old. Yeah, well, I, I don't, I can't remember the facts from the book, but it's it's only it's hundreds of years. Yeah, but in the in the big picture, hundreds of years is like yesterday. Yeah, and it's like like our relationship with alcohol and the other big. So it's it's the the strength of alcohol and it's also the abundance of alcohol that's truly unprecedented. Like for the 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 majority of human existence, like you could only drink alcohol on special occasions. There wasn't a lo- enough of it to be drinking like in abundance every day. It yeah. was saved for, for ritual and special occasions that people would come together and get drunk and like dance. And like, there's all these like things like associated with it. And it's, it's a very, if you're I highly recommend the book, I'll I, check it out. Yeah. You know, what's amazing is like, like right now we have uh, not to get political. I, I have Edward on the show, by the way, if you want to listen to the episode first. All right. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Um, what episode is it? Uh, I'll look it up. Keep going. So, like right now, everyone's talking about gun control, you know, because there's shootings every day. Yeah. And the government didn't do anything about it. Um, they think about, like, during Prohibition, the government sure. goes, no more alcohol. So people must have been really hammered right. for the government because now people are dying, you know, because of guns. Well, either the shooters, the guns are crazy, you know, whatever the issue is. But guns are involved with people dying. And, um, the government didn't do anything, so there must have been a shit ton of people drinking right. prior to prohibition. I would imagine. Um, but the other variable, like when you look at like how many people are dying from guns today, I'd be really curious to see if it's less than the, the amount of people that were dying from guns during like I don't know, like the eighteen, like from like eighteen forty to eighteen ninety. When we were settling the West, well, we had a civil war too. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, like I think. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I it's hor- like people dying from guns is horrible. Yeah, yeah. Like especially I'm not, the I'm not kids. trying. To, yeah, especially like, the kids. Horrible. Yeah. Like I don't want to see it as much as anybody else. Right, right, right. But the point I'm trying to make is relative to our history. There's we live in the uh, the least violent time ever, but you wouldn't know it. By watching the news and listening to like, oh, like all this gun violence. Like, yes, there is gun violence. I'm not denying that. There's far less of it today than there was 100 years ago. Like, everyone was strapped 100 years ago. Like, yeah. people were shooting each other left and right. Frontier. It was part of, yeah, man. Yeah. Like, you couldn't, you like, if you were a frontier person going west, you, there were slim odds you were making it to wherever you were going. You think you would have already been shot by somebody by now? I mean, probably. I have a, sure, I would, a lot yeah, of opinions. Been, <laughs> I'm sure I would have been shot. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't want, again, I'm not trying to underplay like the, like the, the, the tragedy that happens. Um, but just take a few steps back and look at the big picture people. Is yeah. All I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, where we are on your timeline, um, Actually, now is a good time to take one more quick break to thank our sponsor, and we'll we'll start to like really lean into where you are today, how you've scaled your business, and where you're going. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Reachify. Why are you still taking phone calls when you have online services that can support the majority of your callers' needs? Redirect your callers so you can focus on the food and the guests across the counter. Reachify is powerful and flexible. For example, 
With advanced automation and call deflection, Reachify prevents missed caller opportunities and diverts callers to online actions such as online ordering or reservations, which means orders come in faster and more accurately. Reachify delivers safe and secure communication across multiple platforms with intelligently routed messages to the right people, thereby increasing accountability within the team, allowing your in-office and mobile teams to stay connected. With Reachify, you save hours of labor expense by reducing dedicated phone staff. As a matter of fact, some Reachify users have seen a reduction in 40% of their phone staff. That's pretty good. And how's this for a cherry on top? There are no long-term contracts. That's awesome. Reachify. Be in control of the conversation you want to have when you want to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. That's reachify.io slash unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And I want to spend the rest of our time kind of talking about like where you are today and how you like any key evolutions to what got you to where you are today um, and where you think we're headed. How, you know, like if we can peer into the future of the industry, you can be proactive moving into the future. So, real quick, just tell me. Where is your business today? Because I know you have Crunkle, the Crunkleton. You have yeah. a second, the Crunkleton in, was it Charlotte? Yeah, I have the Crunkleton in Charlotte. Which is the same exact restaurant, but they serve food there. Yeah. It's, it opened three years ago, um, and then we're doing one in Raleigh, and we hope to be open by the end of this year. And do you have any other restaurants? I have a, I'm involved in, I'm involved in these things. Um, a wine bar called Rosemont in Charlotte. Um, a cheesesteak concept called Cheats in Charlotte and we're opening our second one there probably within the next four months. And then we're doing this Mexican, like a high end Mexican restaurant called Puerta 
Um, it's going to open in July, I believe. So now I, um, you know, I'm, I'm me. I'm by myself. I'm solo. My wife and I, we have the Crunkleton in Chapel Hill. And then those are the, so the Crunkleton in, um, where's the first Crunkleton? First Hill. one's in Chapel Hill. Yeah. The second one is in Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah. Those are yours alone. No. Um, the Chapel Hill location is mine. It belongs to me and my wife and, uh, we run it. And then our oldest son had some learning differences and we pulled him out of public school and sent him to a private school uh, to sort of combat that, help him. Yeah. Um, so we paid that, that private school bill. And then it got time for our other – we had three boys. When the second child was old enough to go to school, uh, we sent him to that private school too because we thought, well, of course, if Monty can be there, Hudson can be there. So that was two bills. And the, and the, the Crookland – the Chapel Hill location couldn't sustain that. I remember my truck got uh, repossessed, <laughs> and I had to go pick it up. But, but uh, I called this friend of mine in Charlotte, and uh, I said, "Let's let's let's be partners. Let's let's open a Crunkleton in Charlotte because I need more money." And um, he said, "Yeah, let's do it." So down there, I have a partner, and then we have another partner. So there's three people down there, or me and two other. Rather, there's three of us, and we started a hospitality group that is an umbrella or holding company um, for these other concepts. What's that called? 1957 Hospitality. So 1957 Hospitality, it consists of the Crunkletons in Charlotte, uh, the wine bar, which is called, what was it? Rosemont. Rosemont. Cheeks, the cheese day concept, which you're about to have too, and a Mexican concept called uh, Puerta. Puerta. Yeah. Um, It's wonderful. Those things are wonderful because the way – you know that, and Blake, uh, he agreed. Like I said, you know, Blake, I want to, I want to raise all the, all the ships. You know, when the tide, I want people to, to, uh, I want to be able to give opportunities for ownership the way it was given to me. Um, well, someone trusted me with two hundred eighty thousand dollars. That's the way it was given to me. But I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to help other people. So we built this great team in Charlotte, um, Greg and Ryan and Hannah. And they run the Charlotte business, and they do really, really, really well. And then we kind of mentioned to them, if you have ideas, come to us, and uh, we'll see what, we, what you think. So they came up with this cheesesteak concept, and the cheesesteak is delicious. How long ago was this? That was uh, two years ago. Yeah, cheesesteak is blowing up right now. <laughs> yeah, they're delicious. Ours are delicious. I just, you know, I'll eat one and then drive back home because it's, it's two hours away. And then I'm around one hour into the car, I'm ready to take a nap. Um, but the cheesesteaks are delicious. And now those guys, we started in 1957 Hospitality, and those guys are involved with that. And they're not so much at the restaurants or at the locations. They're working on them rather than at them. Um, so we've got this team, this tremendous team, and we can really – I think if you put a concept in front of us, I think that we can – I think we can make it, you know, come to fruition. So, what is your lane? If you had a lane, so like your lane, clearly barman, right? Like bartender now, you know now, but like you, you know the world, the the, the economics of a bar is where I was going. With yeah, that. you know, I, uh, I, I, I start, at first I remember thinking, you know, I bartended in the '90s when they had all these shooters, and then in the 2000s those shooters became martinis. Um. 
And they were, you know, Benedictine or not Benedictine, but B&B was on the wall. And Vars didn't know what to do with it. They just collected dust. Grey Marnier, they didn't know what to do with it. And I remember thinking, oh, I want to mix all those things together. Uh, so that was in the 90s. And, and uh, it was really, really cool. And then, and then turning those turning those drinks into shoot into turning those shooters into uh large martinis just didn't make sense to me they were huge the martini glasses were like 11 ounces they're huge it just you know didn't didn't make sense it was more about quantity rather than quality so when i opened my place you know we went from i guess the market was doing 11 ounce martini glasses to five ounce coupes and twice the price and it was hard you know people People wanted to. Uh, people didn't want to pay that. Um, so I remember I had all this liquor on the wall. And we were making all these old cocktails, but they were still drinking Jack and Coke and, and Makers and Ginger. So I would bring people in. I had to educate the like the smarter the consumer, um, the better my business would be. So I would bring Dale DeGroff in and, and uh, Bernie Lubbers talk about bourbon. Jimmy Russell, um, Freddie No, all these all these big wig people. The goal is to educate. Yeah, so then to, to create excitement around these these drinks you might right. never tried. Right, 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 right. That's um, why I think you'd love the book drunk because I think they get the drunk? into it. Yeah, I think they get into it during that. I've read a couple books. Um, there's another one. It's like are you a big reader? Audiobooks, man. I'm dyslexic, yeah. so yeah, like, I'm I, not a big reader. I love to listen. You know, I'm, I, I can I, I spend a lot of time on the road. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm driving everywhere, so yeah. like I usually am constantly. I'm I'm always listening to people refer books to me too. So I have this like this never ending like reading list yeah. that I just chew through when I'm on the road. Yeah. Um, and I can listen to a book at times too and like absorb really well. And some people can't do that, but I also can't read really well. So you know, <laughs> uh, it's my strength is like being a super listener. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in a, you do good work. Thank you, man. You do good work. Um, yeah, so that's happening, and um, and we we. So, I think that I used to be a barman. I remember putting those, putting those different ingredients together, and then making cocktails. And then I went through a phase, probably 2014 or so, where I wanted to deconstruct. I said, "Why even add? Why even add four different things together when you can have?" scotch which is delicious on its own or bourbon or rye on its own so when people would come to the bar i said, well you know get a middle of high life and a rittenhouse rye if you want to be like me and and just sip and you know do that the sweetness of the high life and the and the pepper of the rye it's a good blend so so um now i think i don't think i've worked myself out of a job but i think now um what I really get excited about is building cultures. Okay. I, I like talking about vulnerability. Uh, I like getting to know the, the staff. I like... Uh, I mean, you, you had a 10-year average tenure at one point. Yeah, with, yeah. That's yeah. huge. Yeah, it's big. So what yeah. are the secrets? If, if this is your lane, if this is your strength, what is, what is the best advice that you wish you had in 2008 that you know today about how to build a culture? We already talked about vulnerability. I, I think... I wish I would have been more confident in myself. Mm. I don't want to cry, but I wish I would have been more confident. Mm. Um, I second-guessed everything I did. And people would say, Gary, you've built – this place is beautiful. You know, what do you think – what do you attribute to your success? And I said, I'm really insecure. And I wanted to make sure I built the place. I didn't want to hear someone talking trash about me. I'm really insecure. And um, 
So I tried to build a beautiful place and have the best service. So, um, so people wouldn't have, they couldn't say this or that. And it, it's taken its toll. Um, it, it's hard. It's hard when you, you know, I am who I am and, and I'm my father's son. And, and, um, now I'm, now I'm a dad and, you know, I pray I'm, I'm, I'm different, but, uh, I, I, yeah, I wish. So why would, why in terms of, leadership, thanks for saving me there. <laughs> no, in terms of leadership and culture, why is, is, um, confidence so important? Well, I talk about being yourself and, um, there's an assertiveness that goes with that and to say, I'm going to do it this way. And then know you're going to do it that way, uh, without compromise. Uh, and I think that confidence is what gives it that. Yeah. Now it can't be at the expense of ego. It has to be humility is important and grace, grace, grace. Now what's helped me is, is, as I say, this isn't me, this is God working through me. Um, and that helps me, uh, you know, my talents. When you say this, you're saying your grace? Yeah, okay. I think. The stuff that I would, that I could boast about. Yeah, the, the things that you're proud of. Yeah. The things, yeah. The, the, the parts of you that you like. Yeah. The, the fact that everyone fucking loves you. I'll say it there. Well. Because everybody I've come into contact with, yeah. man, they have nothing but amazing things to say about you. And your therapist is agreeing with me right now, <laughs> for the record. Um, so, well, thank you. And, but you almost don't own that. No. Those strengths. You don't own your strengths. You say, well, that's just God working through me. That's, yeah, that's what I say. Yeah. So being more self-aware in owning your strengths is something that... I, yeah, I wish that I were more like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, Not at the expense of, 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 of conceit. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, man, like you're doing a lot of things right. Because you had this, this the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, loyalty from your your staff, you know the, the yeah. tenure that you got. Like that's the biggest testament to to, to work culture is the people. Are they sticking around? Yeah, or are they going other places? Yeah, they stuck around. Yeah, yeah. So you already talked about you know pay. You paid them well. Yeah, you gave them benefits. Respect them. Um, obvious stuff. Like you give them, you listen, and you you talk about vulnerability. You encourage them to be themselves and to and to present themselves to your staff or to your your guests. Yeah. I want um, them to be. I want them to be them. Mm. Go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt. No, I'm just, I'm just spitting here. I'm just trying to cover what we've already covered so I can get more. What am I missing? What else did you do? Uh, I give them the rope. Well, you give them the rope. To, to create. Now, I hated when I, when I had a boss. Is it horrible that I thought you'd give them the rope to hang themselves? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, that's the saying. You know, they can hang themselves or they can. But, but, uh, but I. Uh, is, that, is that where that derived from? I think so. Okay. I think so. Um, uh, when um autonomy. So what you what you mean by do you mean autonomy? So when I was a, when I had a boss, I hated I hated being told what to do. You're gonna do it this way. I hated it. Yeah. I hate it. And I've been yelled at. You know, I've been spit at or not spit at, but when they when they yell at you and the spit comes uh, out. I had a football coach who chewed tobacco oh! and he would yell in our faces oh! and like you would get like like chaw on our eyes. Oh my gosh, like, coach, that's disgusting. <laughs> so I hated that. So the people that work with me, I never wanted them to. I never wanted to tell them what to do. I kind of wanted to, I wanted them to buy in, to trust my way, and then let them see that way. Uh, now, I, they are welcome. There's a kid now. 
I just lost one guy last week. Um, but I've got a, I got a kid now. He's not a kid. He's 24. Um, and he's going to be, I mean, he's on fire. He's tremendous. He's smart. He can do what it might take me three years to do. He could do it in one year or, or nine months. And I don't really know. I'm not intimidated by that. I'm excited about it because he's going he's gonna to be able to get through this process a lot quicker and be a leader a lot quicker. Um, but at the same time, he's probably going to leave. You know, he's not going to be around for six years. And how do I embrace that? I used to hate it when, when I lost my staff. I don't talk about this very often. What do you think, when you say loss, do you think to go on to open his own place or to move beyond the industry? I don't know if he'll open his own place or not. But he, this kid could do whatever he wanted. Okay, but I cut you short your train of thought. Can you remember what you were going to say? Well, when I lost my staff in 2016, um, you know, the, the core, yeah. I, that was the last time I trained. I, I stopped training people. Well, you, they, they were your culture carriers. Yeah, you, they, you recreated yourself in them at this point. They, I trained them, each one of them, and uh, they trained the new hires. And uh, I think I didn't feel betrayed, but I remember thinking – I remember thinking, what does Bill Belichick do when all these when these players leave or when these coaches leave and they go not the players but the coaches when they leave and they go coach other teams like, and they know everything about yeah, your yeah they know so now half the I know, I know. I'm, I'm from New England so this is near and dear to my heart <laughs> so half the league knows your playbook yeah yeah literally like if yeah. you look at the NFL right now there's somebody on that staff that played or that was a part but that's what happens yeah, that's I mean, right but I have the, to learn the, how to accept that success breeds success right I have to learn yeah I have to learn how to accept that and I it was that's that was a hard pill for me to swallow I had a I had a uh, an employee a bartender I didn't trust him enough to teach him how to make a Sazerac appropriately the, you know correctly but yet he had a key to the place he you know the safe all that stuff but I didn't trust him enough to teach him how to make the Sazerac, you know? And, um, and, uh, I remember thinking there's something there. Maybe he shouldn't be working here if I can't teach him how to make it. So he didn't last very long. So you couldn't teach him as in he couldn't learn it. Like no, I didn't want to teach him. him. I didn't want to teach him. Why didn't you want to, teach I didn't him? want to show him like what I know. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that That's weird? a good sign. That's your gut. Talking yeah. to you right there. Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to share with him. So then I had all these, I had these three bartenders that had been with me since day one. And um, they all left, all of a sudden left, you know, for great reasons. But I think I went through this thing of a... Uh, Empty nest syndrome? <laughs> well, it's, it's when you, they leave. Yeah. Is, that, is that what it's called? Well, I mean, it's... it's, I, it's I haven't it's, trained since. I haven't trained a bartender since, the way that I used to train them. Yeah. I mean, but when they left, who, who, was, who trained the new people? You had to come back. Well, I had, a, I had a guy, uh, Jordan. Yeah. He was there. And, uh, and then he trained everybody the way he wanted them to be that was 16 to 2000 i think in 18 um and then he's gone but he we left on it was fine. i got yeah. rid of him yeah. i got rid of him yeah. um and i was opening charlotte so i was down in charlotte a lot so things were going its own different way but i think i'm I think I'm rambling. I want to get back to this idea of culture. I'm really just trying to build a culture. Yeah. Like what yeah. is it that you know about building a culture? Like what is it? What are the lessons now? If you're going to open a restaurant tomorrow, like what are you doing to make sure that place has a culture? I think that, I think that, uh, I was listening to your podcast preparing for this and, uh, I think it was nine ninety eight, And yeah, it was the, the guy that cooked with, uh, 
Thomas Keller and Daniel Balud. Yeah. Yeah, I got the case. Yeah, I was listening to him. And you asked him a question. And he said, I don't know the answer. And then I was just, I'm like, I hit myself on the head. I was like, because you treat people the way you want to be treated. Like, if, if, if I go somewhere and I find joy in something, there's the answer right there. So I can't remember what the question was, but what was the original like quote that you share with today? Be, your, be yourself. Be your, just be and yourself. I, and I think I said something along the lines of the, the the secrets to this industry or the lessons we learn like in elementary school or like kindergarten. Treat other people, treat people the, the way, way you, you want, want to be treated. Yeah, they want to be treated. Yeah. But it, it's again, it's that hard and that that easy. You know, it's that easy and that hard. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. like to when, especially when you're scaling and like I think people want to be treated like a significant person. But when you're an owner and you're scaling and you you go from managing 30 relationships to 60 relationships Nine. to 120 yeah. relationships yeah. as you're growing all these businesses, you, you can only handle so many relationships. You can't give the same attention that you did to the, those original 30. Right. You know, so like it's that easy and it's that hard. Like it's easy to say, I'm going to treat everybody amazing and give them my attention and my love. You have to. But you're you're only one. You're one pool. And if when everyone's pulling from it, everyone gets less. Yeah. So it's it's hard. So how do you how do you combat that? I think I uh, make myself give more. Megan will. I, I realize that. I think uh, subconsciously, that's why I've always had a small staff, so it could be sort of like a family. Right. Um, but when you have in Charlotte. And with the new type of workers that are out here, uh, you have to have a lot. You have to have a big, big staff. So I've tried to teach them all. What do you mean by that? Is it because people are working fewer hours, so you need to hire more to, to cover the hours? What, what people are expecting work life balance. People are expecting life balance, and they're expecting to have a role. Got it. They. I have this rule. Well, not a rule. You know, I say we don't have managers in Charlotte. We do. It's completely different. But in Chapel Hill that I run, we don't have managers. We don't have a hierarchy or it's all egalitarian. We're all the same. And we have this this mantra or, or saying, if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. So if you walk down the, at the one end of the bar and see a light bulb out, you got to change it. You can't say, oh, that's for the woman that cleans. Yeah, order, yeah, you got to do it. If I don't do it, it doesn't get done. Right. And when you, I think when you do managers and have like a hierarchy, I think you lose that way of thinking yeah so so it's a culture of ownership if you're here you're an owner it's, right it's the where did they talk about it? i think it's a great game of business i don't know they talk about that it's this, this idea that like you, you create or no it's a it was it's my company too by tom walter thomas walter i believe uh and in that book he talks about an entangled organization and what an entangled organization is, is it's where everybody literally treats it like they're the CEO. Where if the new hire who's been there for a week walks into a room and the CEO is doing something that isn't aligned with the core values and the principles, that new hire can correct the CEO. So like that's the idea of like it's like when you give people the core values and you give people the expectation and you give them the 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 open door to contribute. And say you're just as important as the CEO. We want to hear what you have to say. Right. That's that what, what we you're do. saying. Yeah. yeah, that's what we do. Now, and that's what we've done at the Chapel Hill location. Um, Megan will say that I get too involved in their personal life, in their personal lives. She'll say that I, there should be a wall there. But to me, that's my 
like part of my brilliance that right. I that I do want to explore that and I do want to embrace it. Um, now, what I found with Charlotte, this sounds cynical, but this new worker, twenty one to twenty five, gosh, Gen Z, I think is what we're calling them. What do you call them? Gen Z, maybe. Or I don't know. But they don't want to do that CEO thing. That what you just talked about, that CEO mentality. If I don't do it, it doesn't get done. They want to be compensated for everything they do. And they want to have roles. They want to know what their expectations are. And they want they they want hierarchy. They want managers. Um they want those things. And if they start doing from what I've learned, and it's 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 not a I mean, I'm not in the trenches with them down in Charlotte, but if they do they want compensation for everything they do. Um, so we, tr- well, we try to accommodate that. Well, I mean, that's what balances, right? We always, people are always, oh, it's like this. It's complete chaos. There's no hierarchy. Well, on the flip side, well, what you're saying now is people do want hierarchy and they do want expectations. And I think both are true. But our job as owners is to find the balance, Right, so balance or bounce, balance. Like there's extremes. There's yeah, yin and the yang. Yeah, I'm better black and white. I'm not the gray is hard for me. Yeah, there's it's not. I think extreme left or extreme right. Any polar behavior is generally not good. Not good. Yeah, um, I agree with you. And and most but spectrum, gray is so hard. But but that's the sweet <laughs> part is gray. You know, it's finding the balance. So yeah, do we want to? To give, do we want to empower our staff to feel like they can contribute and have a voice, and that if they have a solution, they can bring it to the table? We do. Yes. Do we want hierarchy because there needs to be a channel of communication? There needs to be a flow. Like if like like hierarchy is important because it's the channel of communication. Like you can't expect like that that line employee can bring something to the team, but they shouldn't go straight to the CEO with it. They should go to their manager and the manager will bring that to the general manager and the general manager will bring that to the, the owner of the business or the person, the CEO. Right. right? So like there is a place for hierarchy because it's how information flows, but you don't want it to be a, a hierarchy in the sense that everyone that is below me works for me. You invert that hierarchy and I'm here to serve everybody else. Right. So it's just how you look at it and find that. I think that's what it really comes down to is there's no right answer. There's like, there's like, there's extremes and somewhere in the middle based on you and what you're trying to do, where you exist and what time, what, what decade it is and what the culture wants. It's, it's constantly trying to find that sweet spot. There's no, it's so fluid. Yeah, I lose you. No, I'm just. I'm thinking. I'm <laughs> thinking. Of a rant. I'm thinking. Um, I'm thinking. It's just so hard. It is hard. It's so hard. Yeah, it's that it's easy. So hard. hard. That's it's like, so hard. Like the it's, but it's it is it's the simple stuff. But it's not easy to do. Yeah, conceptually simple. Conceptually simple, but like the Sazerac, right? But complicated when you make it. When you have to show up every day and find that balance. Yeah, and manage those relationships. So um, I think now I think. This is good for me. Listen to this, doing this. Um, I think now what what I want to focus on is is uh, is engaging this team and doing more businesses uh, because it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's different because it's so different. You know, Eric, when I opened my business. When Meg and I started the bar, I knew it was going to be successful. I knew it was going to be successful. 
I knew it. And I didn't. I don't know how to read a spreadsheet. You know the P and Ls. They intimidate me. And I've, and I've had to learn how to do that. And I still, I still get confused on the periods. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a P and L person either. Man. Yeah, I'm just not good at it. But like there, there's there's freaks of nature that are left side and right side yeah. brain, and they they get it all. I'm far social emotional intelligence i'm a culture person if yeah. i was in a restaurant today i'd be the rah rah yeah let's go everybody yeah and that person has a lane yeah and that's why i think it's smart to have partners because i don't to be the best today you can't do it alone man Man, the, the, the partners make it so much easier you got support it's so much easier yeah um so where do you think we're going let me ask you that what's the future of the industry so i think i think you know that the, the the light's coming down. What do you mean by that? We're in a tunnel, and the light's coming down. And we don't know if it's an oncoming train or if, or if or it's, it's the, the sunlight. <laughs> but I think what's happening is we've got to – we have to find a way to uh, – everybody shares – in the and then in the benefits of the business, I think that is the future. And I've been, I, you know, like you're reinforcing. I thought I was a crazy person for the longest time because I started saying this like five years ago. Yeah, I think the future of the industry is in partnerships. Yeah, because there's fewer people working in the industry. If you really want the talent, what what is going to bring them to the table? A paycheck isn't enough today. No, it's not enough. They want they want security. They, they want equity. They, they want their name on that on the front of. That they want a, a title. They yeah. want a title. Right. The, the in Charlotte. Uh, one of the guys has. Uh, I hope he's not listening to this, but his title is like. Uh, I hope that old employee's creator, girlfriend like, isn't listening to this. <laughs> the one that wanted to get married. And <laughs> oh, 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 no, they're married. They're married. They they're married. They're married. He, he came uh, around. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, they live in Tahiti. Oh, nice. Um, no, Bali. They live in Bali. Uh, but one of the guys has this title, and I thought I told my partner, I said, man. I don't want to sound like a baby, but that's what I want to be. <laughs> he, said, he said, yeah, they all want titles. Yeah. Uh, it's like creative development or something like that. Well, that's um, part of human needs to be seen. It's literally right above like security. It's security. Yeah. Does, do, do people see me? Yeah. Then it's like personal yeah. growth and it's self-actualization or something like that. But, but I think uh, I love the partners. I love it. And, and they make, I have two, you know, in Charlotte and I've been in three different partnerships and this is the only one that's still, viable uh the other two have been horrible um and they're not they don't exist anymore but my two partners in charlotte make me better they make me want to perform better and um it's different my roles are changing like you know i was i was barman in charge of the drinks and the bar program but now there's people that are doing that uh that you know that are that are making it happen and um it doesn't have to I don't have to have oversight over it because they already understand what I'm, you know, what I'm about, um, which is good. Uh, I think, uh, I think there's something true to giving these people, giving the staff ownership, this equity. Well, there's something that's freeing about it too. You give now they're partners; they're going to treat it like they own it. They're they, they literally own it. So there's no calling in sick to go to a party. Like mm-hmm. they got stake in the game; it's yeah. their business. But also having people buy in and have stake in the game means you can replace yourself with with new owners, right? And go on and start new businesses yeah. and increase your wealth. But the only way you can replace yourself, like like employees, are transient. Owners are a little more sticky, especially right. when they buy in. 
So like, what is your business model for that? Like real quick, if you had one, uh, there's one company that I, they're going to hate me for telling me this. Cause now I, I keep on like sharing with the world, like their business model and what they're doing. I think it's like eat, um, eat, drink and be merry. Oh, is it a hospitality group? Yeah, it's in New York. I, I've had like their their sister company on the show, Uptown Social, mm-hmm. on Charlotte, Charleston. Sorry, Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, and what they do is they say basically like this is the value of the business. You know, it's worth a million dollars, and if you want a point to be an equity partner, you got to pay us ten thousand dollars, and you own a percentage of the business. But beca- but to become a partner, you need to buy in. But I love that because. It filters out people who aren't serious. They they have to go get the money, and it's and it's in reach from like most young people can't come up with a no, million dollars. Most of these bartenders don't. Yeah, they don't have. The but money. they can they can work to ten thousand dollars. They can get a loan from a family member for ten thousand yeah. dollars, and that yeah. gives them that gives them stake equity in a business. I didn't know about that model. We don't have a model. We don't have. They a model. They basically figure out EBITDA. Yeah, and then they say based off the EBITDA, this is what one point's worth. And if you want to be a partner. You can buy in, and then you—they generally have a lane. They're like a front of house person or a chef, right? Or they even have a marketing person on staff who owns equity in a business, and then she does marketing for all the businesses in the group. It's fucking fascinating. And the group like, pays them, and the, and they—they they, I think they make a salary. Owners pay. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That's so, a nice model. Um, I don't think we're that organized. I don't think a lot of people are. That's why I'm here, my man. Because <laughs> if we're going to transform the industry, if we're going to empower people, they got to hear. Like they got, we need we need inspiration. We need to see what other people are doing. It's so different than the way it used to be. Right. Used to be you had to. Oh my gosh. Used to be you had. You had to work twenty years, you know, before you. Like, I worked it for a long time before I owned, um, and someone trusted me with the money and they they lent it to me, but now. Um, now these they're getting our staffs getting equity just based on their work within three years and it's it's wonderful but it's different. There's different models and I would love to hear about the different models. We do have to wrap it up. We yeah, got one more minute before three o'clock, uh, and I, we're getting John in the seat. John's been so generous um, with letting us use this space here um, to record these interviews. So um, before we say goodbye, I got to ask you: Who do you respect and admire in the industry? Somebody that is a restaurant owner or operator who's killing it, who's a leader in their market, who if it was a guest on the show, you'd be like, I want to listen to what that person has to say. What they're spilling their guts, like sign me up. What do they have to share? Who's that for you? And if you can't just think of one person, you can give me multiple. Uh, Jack McGarry. That owns Dead Rabbit. Yeah, that's the second call out. So this, yeah. we're going to make this happen. But I can't, you know, like with Jack, I mean, he has a notepad with 10, 6, 15 pages of to-dos and he just goes through them and marks them off as he does them uh i don't think that's not me although i admire him um uh sean Kenyon out in colorado Kenyon, sean Kenyon, yeah and it was at denver yeah he owns williams and graham williams and graham yeah yeah all right. That's good, man. Thank you. And uh, before we say goodbye, we've got to have you also let us know if we're inspired by your story. Maybe we're in North Carolina or maybe we want to relocate. And uh, you, it sounds like you're opening a lot of concepts right now. Yeah. Maybe there's room for growth. Uh, maybe we want to learn from one of the legends in the industry and how to make these amazing cocktails and to get that education. Uh, are you hiring? Um, we are always hiring. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we're always hiring. What's your information? Uh, it's just Gary Crunkleton at Gmail. Awesome. And maybe yeah. this is somebody who is 
inspired by your story and they're an owner and they want some advice. Yeah. Know? Reach out. I, I'm glad to help. It takes a village. Um, yeah. Gary Crunkleton at gmail.com. No space. Uh, no dots. G A R Y C R U N K L E T O N. Beautiful. Gary, this is where I say there is no questioning, my man. You are <laughs> unstoppable. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Thank you. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Gary Crunkleton, a legend in the, I don't know, rally, uh, Chapel Hill, Durham, all those areas. This guy uh, brought craft cocktails, uh, this, this lost form of craft cocktails back to the South, and uh, he's just doing an, an amazing job rallying and uh, supporting his industry and just the the level of vulnerability that came out of today's conversation man uh, it was a pleasure to share your story thank you so much and if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more episodes just like this one this podcast needs your support the best way you can support this show right now is by joining our community restaurant unstoppable network where we're literally slowing down and unpackaging all these clues that we're picking up during these interviews the podcast job is to inspire the the network's job is to empower where we really implement these things together with other restaurateurs across the country and we're getting our guests in the network as well so we actually have two events lined up uh, in the near term on August 7th, we have David Domzalski and David Nitzel coming into the network. Uh, they were just recently on the show, uh, aligning guest expectations, team motivations, and the marketing strategy. Uh, that's going to be the, the subject there on August 7th at 4 p.m. We'd love to have you join. And then we have. Christine Miles. She was recently on the show with her book all about how to become a better listener. She's going to be talking to us about the recipe for making a lasting impact on your restaurant through listening. That is August 21st. We would love to have you be a part of these workshops. So all you got to do is head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is. We're going to have a banner in the show notes of these episodes if you click those banners or find the link for the network in the show notes what we'll do is give you a 30-day trial to the network so you can be a part of these conversations and we'll throw in a restaurant unstoppable t-shirt to say thank you for all of your support uh and i cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who will help make this podcast possible thank you to jared parisi with sumadre podcast for your editing and copyright thank you callan miola for being an amazing addition to our team and the support you're giving us as the restaurant unstoppable network community manager and thank you to anatazen with the good kind consulting for your executive support and operational help that's it for today until next time peace out